and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. On today's show, we're sharing tips to prevent back and neck pain while sewing. Now is a more important time than ever to care for your body. So especially if you've been doing a lot more sewing recently, these tips will help keep you feeling good and limber. We also share the story of a staff member's most cherished quilt, the history of sampler quilts, and an upcoming virtual quilt retreat we're hosting. To end the show, we chat with Karen Stiles, a well-known Australian fabric and pattern designer. Just a note, we're all recording the podcast in our homes, so there are times when the sound quality isn't the best. We apologize. Let's dive in. Quilting is a very physical hobby, especially when some of us may be sewing a lot more than usual because we're cooped up in our homes it's important to be aware of the physical toll sewing can take on our bodies. In order to save your body from pain and stress, it's vital to practice healthy sewing habits. I'm here with Joanna Berger-Reno, the editor of Quilts and More, to share some easy changes you can make that will make a big difference in your sewing life. I'm excited to see what Joanna has to say. I woke up this morning after a weekend of doing a lot more sewing than I'm used to, and my shoulders and lower back are a little sore. Take it away, Joanna. Thanks, Lindsay. The topic of the many health benefits of sewing and how to keep sewing from causing aches and pains so that you can keep on enjoying your hobby has been on the minds of our staff for a while now, long before the quarantines. When we were planning the summer issue of Quilts and More, which is out on newsstands this Friday, April 24th, We knew we wanted to address this topic in more depth. We reached out to our designers who are featured in the issue and then broke down what healthy sewing means to each of us in a story that we called Mindful Making. In the story, we started with how quilting is so beneficial for your mental health. Then we divided all the healthy sewing tips and advice we got into sections on eye health, back health, and wrist health. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about just the back health portion, but I would encourage you to check out the whole story in the issue. Keep in mind that healthy sewing means different things to different people. In fact, the different opinions from the designers in the issue when it came to what healthy sewing meant was fascinating. It was actually one of my favorite parts of the story. From personal experience, I remember when I first started quilting that everyone told me about the work triangle, which is a sewing room configuration where your sewing machine, cutting mat, and ironing board are in a close triangle. It helps with efficiency because you rarely have to get up and move around, so you can devote more time to sewing. However, when I tried it, I found my back was killing me the next day. I have a back condition called scoliosis, so for me, I need to make sure I get up and move around every 20 minutes or so. Sitting still for that long can make me incredibly stiff and uncomfortable. Currently, my ironing board is on the far side of the room, so contrary to the work triangle, and it forces me to get up and stress stretch whenever I need to press something. 
Usually, I pile up pinned units for chain piecing, sew them all, and then go press all of them at once when I have a good pile. The system works really well for me. I also try to break my sewing into shorter sessions of 30 minutes to an hour rather than sewing for hours on end. I think a lot of us have a habit of ignoring when our bodies are trying to tell us that we need a break and instead we try to just push through the pain. Usually that just makes the pain worse. So learning to listen to when my back and shoulders are hurting and being kind to myself has made a huge difference, not only in alleviating pain, but also in just how much I enjoy sewing in general. Improper posture is one of the biggest causes of back pain. When you're sewing, keep your shoulders back. Don't hunch forward as you sew. I know it's tempting. Make sure your elbows are at 90 degree angles at your sides and keep your feet flat on the ground. Now, if you're short like me, you might need a foot rest for this. Also, something a lot of sewers, myself included, don't think about is that sometimes we chase after our foot pedal, and then when we do that, we stretch our feet in really odd ways. So if the sewing machine foot pedal that you have tends to squirm around and move, you might want to look into products such as adhesive grips that will keep it from doing that. You'd be surprised, but when you're chasing after your foot pedal, you run the risk of hurting your ankle, and then you also might put your spine into weird positions, which, again, cause pain in the long run. One response I got from multiple designers is that they found a good ergonomic chair was crucial for preventing back pain when sewing. In fact, so many of our designers commented on how much of a difference their chairs made that I couldn't fit all of the chair-related quotes in the final issue. You'd be surprised how much your chair makes a difference. Proper support for your spine can help alleviate stiffness and let you sit for longer periods without pain. Although, of course, you should still get up and stretch and take breaks. Look for chairs that are designed to be adjustable for different heights and feature good support, especially lumbar support for your lower back. I experienced the difference a good chair can make just recently. I have a nice sewing chair in my studio, which is upstairs in my attic loft, and with my current setup, I can sit pretty easily without pain as I sew. However, my senior dog, who loves to follow me around, can't go up the stairs anymore, so I moved my sewing machine to the kitchen table. It's less comfortable, but I don't have to worry about her following me upstairs and possibly falling down a flight of stairs. After the first day of sewing at the kitchen table, however, my back was killing me, and I realized it's because of the unsupportive straight-back wooden chair that I had been using, the chair that goes with the kitchen table. It's not the chair's fault. It's just not designed for supporting your back while you're sewing. I think I'm going to need to drag my nice chair downstairs at this point. Sure, a nice chair that's designed for the task at hand can be a bit of an investment, but it's totally worth it in the aches that it prevents. I think one thing the last few months have made abundantly clear is that life can change quickly, and you have to adapt the best you can. Never ignore any aches and pains you get after a bout of sewing. You might need to evaluate things like your chair and your posture, as well as how often you get up and stretch. Little changes can make a big impact. We all love to sew, and numerous studies have shown how good it is for us in relieving stress and expressing our creativity and emotions. Don't lose out on the benefits because some bad habits are causing you pain. And, of course, if you have any mysterious aches or pains, especially ones that don't go away, you really should speak to a professional such as your doctor or a chiropractor. Don't wait. Sewing should not cause you pain.
Thanks so much, Joanna. Now, if you're like me, you want specifics on how exactly to prevent this pain. So here are some details. First, let's talk about your sewing machine table. When you're sitting at your table, the height should be where your elbows can be bent at a 90 degree angle and close to your body. In order to accomplish this, you can have your sewing machine sit down in your table so the feed dogs are even with the table. If you don't have a table to accommodate this, add an extension table to your machine to provide extra support. A larger table can help support the weight of sewing and quilting heavy quilts to avoid strain. If you have a smaller table, try adding an ironing board or collapsible table to one side when needed. And like Joanna mentioned earlier, your chair should be at a height so that you can sit with your legs at a 90 degree angle and feet flat on the floor. When you're sewing, sit with your shoulders relaxed and your back straight and add a lumbar pillow to your chair if you need it. Next, let's chat about your cutting and ironing surface. The cutting table should be two to three inches lower than your waist, so you can give direct downward pressure while cutting. To achieve the perfect height, you can use bed risers to lift a table. Your ironing board should be at waist height, so you're not lifting a heavy iron too high up or slumping over to iron, and always stand when you're cutting and ironing. One more thing that people don't often consider in terms of their back pain is their lighting. Good lighting in your sewing room of course protects against eye strain, but also improves posture because you don't have to hunch over to see better. If your room doesn't have good natural light, or you're sewing at night, consider adding extra light to your space with overhead and task lighting. We did a really great video showing all of these tips so that you can see the correct positions of your furniture and your body while sewing. So check out the show notes for the link. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Welcome back. We're here again with Joanna to share the story of her most cherished quilt. On the last page of each issue of American Patchwork and Quilting, we're featuring a designer's most cherished quilt, so our staff wanted to share theirs on this podcast. Tell us about your quilt, Joanna. You know, the question of what's my most cherished quilt was actually surprisingly difficult for me. Not many of my close friends or family members quilt, so I don't have many quilts that were gifts and come with those fond memories of our relationships attached to them. I have plenty of quilts I've made, but do I cherish them? I enjoy them, certainly, but, well, when I think cherished, I think the quilt I would save from a fire, or at least I'd be really bummed if I lost it in a fire, something dramatic like that. What quilt did I have that met that criteria? So I thought about it for a good long time, and then when reorganizing my linen closet, I found a quilt I had forgotten about. It was the quilt my mom made me when I was a kid. She gave it to me on a recent visit. She had actually found it in her linen closet when she was reorganizing it. It wasn't quite a baby quilt, but I'm pretty sure she made it for me when I was a toddler and got my first big girl bed. The whole quilt is alternating four-inch finished squares of solid cream and a light blue and pink floral calico stripe. 
It's hand quilted, and there was a matching pillow sham she gave me that was edged in lace. The whole set is very sweet and pretty, simple, but made with a lot of love. And I realized it's my most cherished quilt. My mom doesn't even quilt much, but she stretched outside her comfort zone to make that just for me. It feels like it's part of my history. Will I put it out? Honestly, probably not. I'll fold it nicely and pack it back into the closet. But I won't forget it's there this time. And knowing that I have that particular quilt makes me feel happy and secure. Love hearing that story from Joanna. We would love for you to share your most cherished quilt on Instagram and tag it with hashtag mycherishedquilt so we can see. Next, we have an exciting announcement. Each year on National Quilting Day, we host a virtual quilt retreat on our social media accounts. National Quilting Day is always the third Saturday in March, so we just celebrated a month ago, right at the start when people were being quarantined. It was so popular, and we had so many people to ask to do it again that we're hosting another one. Our next virtual quilting retreat is Saturday, May 2nd. Here's how it works. No need to sign up or even leave your house. Just log into Facebook and Instagram to join us. You can find us by searching for American Patchwork and Quilting. The day of the retreat, get in your comfiest clothes, grab your favorite snacks, and make progress on a project or two. We'll be asking questions and posting photos throughout the day on our social media pages. It's a great way to connect with quilters from all over the world, especially during a time when we're so isolated. You can post pictures on your progress, ask questions, share knowledge, and more so we can all get to know each other. It's so much fun and is such a relaxing day. Since many of us are taking on extra responsibilities at home, working longer hours, or feeling the added stress of just surviving during this time, it's important to take some time for yourself and your quilting. We hope you can join us on May 2nd. Now we're hearing from Jody Sanders, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting for Collector's Corner, a segment where we explore antique quilts and notions and their history. So what are we learning today, Jody? Today in Collector's Corner, I want to talk about sampler quilts. Now one area that's really popular with quilt making right now is making different blocks and putting them all together in a quilt. Well, this is not a new phenomenon or technique. A sampler quilt is made when you use a different design for each block in the quilt. Now these can be pieced blocks or applique blocks or a combination of both. There are examples from the mid-1800s of Baltimore album quilts and these are uh, applique quilts where each block is a different applique pattern. So the hand-stitched blocks featured motifs that include things like florals, baskets of fruits, uh, pets, monuments, and sometimes political or fraternal organizations. As applique became a little less fashionable in the latter part of the 19th century, quilters started making pieced sampler quilts. Now, some late 19th century sampler quilts appear to be records of patterns that were popular during that time in history, so they're a great record for us to be able to go back and refer to. 
Sometimes quilters made test blocks to put um, everything together, make sure the templates worked and they liked their color combination before they actually cut it out to make a whole quilt. Now, if she was making a quilt for somebody else, maybe she made an extra block to keep as a record. Eventually, after a certain number of these tests or leftover blocks were made and set aside, there was enough to make a quilt. Quilts where fabrics appear to be a combination of different styles and colors, maybe ones that you wouldn't normally think to put together, may actually be leftover or test blocks from other quilts. Sampler blocks were often set side by side in a quilt top, but to make bl different block sizes fit together, they maybe had to add some strips or some sashing squares or rectangles. These vintage quilts can sometimes appear to be really haphazard, but upon closer inspection, they can show a lot of thought actually went into setting all of those seemingly unrelated pieces together. Now, today's sampler quilt classes are offered in shops, usually as beginning classes for quilters. They teach different techniques for each block, and then the blocks are all put together based on those finished lessons and made into a quilt. In fact, the second and third quilts that I made in 1989 when I started quilting were actually sampler quilts. Thanks, Jody. Some of the very first quilts I made were sampler quilts too. It's a great way to experiment with different blocks and techniques. Of course, follow Jody on Instagram at SewMoreQuiltsMom. She posts the most beautiful photos of her antique quilt collection. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Welcome to Getting Social. On today's interview, Doris Brunette, the editor of Quilt Sampler, chats with Karen Stiles. Doris did this interview back in October when our staff was in Houston for Quilt Market, so you'll hear us mention that a few times. Karen is a talented quilter and handpiecer, fabric designer with Marcus Fabrics, author of the new book, Seems Like Yesterday, and lover of antique quilts and reproduction fabrics. She also owns the online store Somerset Patchwork and Quilting in Australia, which we think you'll be able to gather from her accent. On top of all that, she teaches internationally. Enjoy their chat. Okay, this is Doris Burnett. I'm here with Karen Stiles. I'm actually meeting with her in person. She is from uh, Melbourne, Australia. And um, I'm visiting with her in Houston, Texas. She's in um, the States for about a month doing some teaching and um, doing fall quilt market in Houston and festival. So uh, thank you very much for taking time to sit down with me and chat. Thank you very much, Karen. You're welcome. It's really nice to meet you, Dor Doris. Thank you. Um, can Just to get started, can you give us a little bit of background about your how you got started in quilting? Um, I know you learned to English paper piece as a young person, um, but then got back into quilting much later. And my story is kind of similar that similar. I started started as a teenager and then went away from it for a long time and came back and got hooked. So if you can tell us a little bit about that story. I think all of us are, are much the same. You know, we did start as teenagers at high school and then I had young 
children, I was a stay-at-home mum and I needed a hobby other than some of the things that I was, was doing around the house. So I probably started doing patchwork when, when I was in my mid-30s. I didn't really know what I was doing and a friend of mine gave me a class for a Christmas present and that really sparked my attention to, to doing patchwork. Nice. Yeah, so I've tried all sorts of things. I did do all of the traditional craft things, but patchwork was one of those ones that I really wanted to get into. But I did know as a stay-at-home mum with only limited funds at the time that it was going to be an expensive hobby. So I did put it off, put it off, put it off (laughs) until... I just couldn't put it off any longer because I wanted <laughs> to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a lot of times um, people often start when they have little ones at home and they need something to mm-hmm. keep themselves sane or they start because they want to make a baby quilt yeah. for that first child That's right. or sometimes even that first grandchild. But a lot of times when it's our first well, child, well, we I don't would, have the money at that time. So I would like to think that most girls, especially the future generation coming, that they will start with their own children and not wait until their grandchildren. Yes, and I think that's happening with a lot, I think a lot of the young quilters we see. coming along more. We see at the shows yes, and that, yes. so, so which I, is good to I know. I did start by doing a lot of handwork because, again, limited funds. Um, hand piecing meant that in, in Australian dollars, $100, for example, would last six months to run through. But once I started to machine, I discovered that my $100 actually disappeared very quickly. <laughs> like you could make a whole quilt in a week. It goes a little faster, yeah, the process, yes. Definitely. So, <laughs> so I began mostly hand piecing, um, slow stitching, just taking my time so that my finances sort of and my fabric uh, lasted a bit longer than uh, a machine pieced quilt. Okay. And I know you eventually started teaching. Was that mm-hmm. at the same quilt shop that you had originally taken it, the patchwork classes? It was, classes funny or? enough. I did do a few classes at, at our neighbourhood um, community centre, which uh, sort of easy learning from like-minded people. Uh, but then I discovered a patchwork shop and I fell in love with the, uh, the whole process. And I was only doing what I would call now serious patchwork for about three years when okay. I was approached by the current owners at the time um, if I'd like to teach, fill in for a year and, and teach a sampler class. Um, I do like precision. I do like, you know, doing the exact measurements, etc. So to be able to show other beginners how to do it mm-hmm. and watch them get so excited by the process... Uh, was was a lot of fun. So I taught at the shop for three years and then the opportunity came up to purchase that shop and I did. It's a bit like, you know, you like the hobby so much, you turn it into a career. Might as well jump right in (laughs) and turn it into a career. That's great. So I've been serious since 2003. Okay. Um, Yeah, we had had the store for 14 years. Okay. Relocated a few times, changed the name uh, to Somerset Patchwork, Mm -hmm. which is what I'm known by today. And um, just then extended my teaching to not just our local store, but the community um, the Australian community, and now I teach in Europe and in America. Very international, career very international these days. Yes. So yes, and summer what Somerset Patchwork is no longer a brick and mortar store, correct? But you That's do still it. run that yes. as an online. We don't have anywhere and... for a customer to actually okay. visit, mm-hmm. but we are online, and all of our product that we have is online as well. Okay, mm. great. 
Well, I know. It's wonderful business, and I've always seen you at Quilt Market and various shows that I've attended and admired your work. I'm very much a precision person myself. Thank so, you. And I love the hand piecing process. I, I love all of it. And I know that you have answered that question in other interviews that I I've have. heard <laughs> that you love every bit of it. So I love I want to ask you what your favorite part of the process is because I know no. that that is typically your answer. No, well, a lot of people do ask me how I sort of get get through the processes. And I think I am a process person. I do like... I always make a block first out of every, any project that I do, a mm-hmm. test block. Once I'm comfortable that that works, I then mass cut. And I can sit at my sewing machine for very naughty, but I can sit at it for eight to ten hours a day and just just stitch when I am machining. Okay. I tend to stitch by hand mostly in the evenings. And again, I can start after dinner and stitch for several hours and go, oops, it's time for bed. Force yourself to get up and go to bed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, those of us that truly love the hobby um, can understand that completely. Definitely. We all understand that, don't we? Um, so uh, how did you get into teaching internationally? Were you invited to do that or did you apply I, for that process? I, or? I haven't actually applied for anything. Uh, I was just lucky I guess that um, there was one particular project that we brought along for spring market and sort of had it hidden in the background and and a few ladies saw it and then I brought it back again for fall market uh, and we stayed on for festival and I had just that little project tucked in a corner it was only a camouflage for some of our stock Mm -hmm. for later on and these two two ladies came up to me again and looked at it and said, oh, we really like that project. Would you like to come and teach? And they were in um, Kansas City, and it, that was my first international um, okay. exposure. But because I did that, they told their friends, and then I came to market, and other people would come and, and ask if I was available. And, and I just traveled from there so I'm doing some exciting things in the next year and I've been very busy this year with with um, the three corners of the world I call it so (laughs) the European market the American market and the Australian market okay is part of that your busyness this year with the release of your new book uh, seems like yesterday which just came out uh, in September of 2019 this last um this last trip that I've been on I left home on the 3rd of October and I'm not actually going to reach home until the 15th of November has mostly been to do with the book so the Quilt Mania book uh, every location I've been so far has had a book signing and um, they've really enjoyed what they've seen. That's wonderful. I did have a chance um, here in Houston to put my hands on it. It is a beautiful book. Thank so you. you have Thank you have you. a product to really be proud of there. So. I am very happy with it. Uh, <laughs> how did that come about that you've been in the business uh, and teaching for so long? And I know you've done, I don't know how many, maybe you know the number of your individual patterns that you've published total, I've but this is the track. first book. So <laughs> I have lost track of the number of patterns that I've actually done, but it's... Um, oh, it, it, the the patterns in the book were a, a lot of fun to do uh, because we don't have a, a, a walk-in store anymore. Um, I was able to use fabric that I've been collecting for the last 20 years. Okay. So rather than just using things that I need to, to sell in my store or here. Mm. Okay. Okay, that's wonderful. And so did you develop all new patterns for the book, correct? Mostly they are new. There's 15 designs in the book, and I think three of them have been published before. 
Okay, great. Just kind of revamped them a little bit, I freshened did. them up for I the did. book. So, I've, okay, I've known wonderful. the girls from Quilt Mania for, for many years and they had asked me for many years to do it and I did kind of stall a little when I had the store but once we closed the business um, it was much easier to focus on it and then travel to do to do the things that I do. Sure, when you're not tied to a brick and mortar exactly. business that, that makes it a little easier. So, well that's great. Um, I'm kind of curious that you said in the introduction to your book that you um, worked your way through many techniques and styles in the beginning, and you touched on that a little bit. Um, But how has your style changed? I think um, people see you as very traditional, and your fabrics are, including your fabrics that you've designed for Marcus, um, fabrics are very uh, traditional reproduction style fabrics. Um, How would you say those styles have changed through here? The styles have really changed a lot. I think when I first started to to make quilts, I did choose colour and I would, if I wanted green, I would just pick a green off the shelf at whatever a patchwork store I was in. Um, I made flowery quilts for my daughter to start with and I also have two sons and those boys said that they'd like quilts but didn't want anything that had flowers <laughs> so I went through again and chose colours so I started teaching as I mentioned earlier at our local store and they covered all sorts of uh, fabric choices they had a lot of pretties they had a lot of duller colours I didn't really understand uh, 20 years ago what each of these fabrics were, but I have discovered owning the store and then being the purchaser of the fabrics that my colourings and taste became reproduction. It wasn't something that I could say, ooh, that was reproduction. It was just this gradual learning of what they were. Okay. And I feel that I just moved out of the pretty things into what I like my ancestors would have made right Um, and those those wonderful women from our past who who created quilts using that style yes that style and a lot of the beautiful intricate quilts that Mm -hmm. we make today but didn't always have the The, quick process that we have the nice tools and I do work through and I create easy piecing for what looks like difficult work so the ladies who come to my workshops often remark that, oh, I thought this was going to be much harder than this. Yes, because many of your patterns include curves, which intimidate a lot of quilters, <laughs> even at, even you know intermediate to mm-hmm. advanced quilters are sometimes uh, intimidated by That's curves. Right. So, In um, my sampler class, yeah. I used to make sure that they knew how to do a curve and how that to do a setting seam. That was kind That's of my great goal to introduce in beginners to that yes. right away. Yes. Um, that's important before I think, they realize that they should be nervous of them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. That's a really good point. To, yes. Um, sometimes you don't know when you're just beginning. So no. <laughs> um, sometimes when you see those, uh, somebody says their first quilt was a mariner's compass or something like that. We had one in our local quilt show five or six years ago that was in the first quilt category and everybody was like what they chose a mariner's compass for their first quilt but they didn't know any better they didn't (laughs) and um i i have had ladies um um some of you may know the quilt that i i believe is is the one that says karen uh is mrs billings yes and i have had ladies do that as their second or third ever quilt okay yeah and it's got six and a half thousand pieces in it yes and they weren't it's amazing they weren't (laughs) worried about it because that's what they wanted to make that's great yeah 
And, and I think that's a lot of times that's what gets that per- person hooked right away. That new Correct. quilter is just finding that one thing that they just love and they really want to make it. So as a teacher, um, whether it's considered a beginner project or not, but I used to um, specialize in beginners very back when I started yeah. teaching and um, they, if you teach them well, they don't realize what what they should be afraid of exactly that's a really good point be able to do (laughs) yeah I like that I like that attitude that's a really good point so um yeah I don't even remember my beginner classes and I'm somewhat part somewhat (laughs) self-taught but then started taking classes after I taught myself my beginner's quilt top is finished but I will never quilt it and I do not uh, display it (laughs) yeah Um, mine actually lives in the trunk of my car is Uh my car quilt that gets kind of beat up (laughs) so yeah that's understandable do you have a favorite quilt block or quilt quilt block I like an eight-pointed Lemoyne star okay and I do like the setting seam so Mm -hmm. that is something that a lot of my students are afraid of like we were speaking about before but um I can usually persuade them that they're not difficult yeah but anything eight-pointed if if you look at my work I do have a little three-inch block which is an eight-pointed star and there are 365 of those stars in the quilt oh my goodness so you make one a day <laughs> every day for a whole year and you end up with an it 81 is inch accomplishable square. that's right yes so that's my favorite block the yeah. eight-pointed star okay that is a good one, yeah, and, and that's true about set-in seams, mm-hmm. um, and that was one of the things that I think I did early on as a quilter that I didn't know any better. I didn't know I was supposed to that's be right. intimidated by set-in yeah. seams. Um, <laughs> someone showed me how to do it, and really, if someone shows you how to do it correctly, it's really that's not right. that difficult. A good so. teacher will always, yes, um, lead you to the right uh, end. Yes, <laughs> and that's good advice for any new quilter, I think, Definitely. too. Like, don't be afraid, like, just... Mm-hmm. Find, find the right instructions. Today we have YouTube and all kinds of That's wonderful right. um, yeah. options out there, even I if often, you don't have a local quilt shop. I often recommend in class, too, that you uh, do as I'm suggesting you do for the class. But when you leave to go home, it is your quilt. And if you do lots of classes with lots of different people, you will come up with the technique that's the easiest for you to do, and you will be able to make anything you want. That's wonderful. Yeah, I like that that how long have you been um coming to uh quilt market in the states international quilt market in the states? this is our eighth year coming okay. we've done every spring and fall market till mm-hmm. till today you know mm-hmm. next year's another year well, right. i will do expect <laughs> we'll be here but um and we've done festival for i think this is our seventh festival okay. starting on wednesday night okay great well thank you very much for meeting with me it was wonderful to meet you in person I've long been an admirer of your quilts I think I probably first was introduced um, through a pattern that was published in quilt mania so um, like I say I was I was very happy to see the book come out and enjoyed leafing through it yesterday when I I got to see it it. (laughs) face to face so thank you again Karen and um, safe travels back home we hope to hear a lot more from you in the future thank you very much I loved Doris's chat with Karen. Karen makes the most beautiful creations, so we'll link to her website and social media sites in the show notes so that you can see her work and connect with her more. Before we leave today, I need your help. We want to share your quarantined quilting stories on an upcoming podcast. If you'd like to share how sewing or quilting is helping you through this time, please call and leave us a voicemail at 
515-257-6870. You can also email us your story or a voice memo at apqpodcast at meredith.com. all and thanks for listening keep in touch american patchwork and quilting is on facebook pinterest and instagram at all people quilt email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast and if you love the american patchwork and quilting podcast please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free and don't forget to rate and review the show it helps other quilters find us Have a creative week.